Um, Constantly. So be prepared for that. <laughs> the world, everybody like us needs a Tyree in our life. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They just <clears throat> need to pay Tyrees. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> one, one day, man. So, we're, are we good to go? We're we ready to go. Mm-hmm. We're ready to fucking. All right, let's do this shit. All right. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to start the music. I'm going to introduce the show. I'm going to pass it to Kevin, and we're going to go on from there. Cool? Cool. Here we go. In three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Tyree here with uh, Before I Forget, along with Kevin. Say hey, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Hey, what was the... uh uh, before I forget part, did you forget the name of the show? Oh no, 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 no! Oh, I'm over here almost. screwing with buttons and whatnot. Yeah, buttons and whatnot. Yeah. Very, very tech savvy. Yeah, I give it a shot. Yeah. Hey, what are we doing today? Today we're going to do a show because yesterday was Father's Day and we had to move some things around. So here we are. That's not a bad thing because we have a very special guest. Yeah, uh, we do. Uh, so we have today with us. His name is David Ordell, right? Uh, retired uh, Air Force uh, Command Chief Master Sergeant, which is the equivalent of a Command Sergeant Major in the Army. Um, over 30 years, he has, he's got the the the, uh, the the exact count. I'll let him tell that part. It's 30 years, six days, six months, something crazy. Um, number one bestseller of a book called uh, Giving Back, Life and Leadership from the Farm to the Combat Zone and Beyond, uh, which is found on Amazon, and the founder and leader of MaxFab Consulting, uh, Dave, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself some more. Hey, thanks, guys. <clears throat> this is great. Yeah, a little, little Monday evening uh, podcast, right? Who yeah. does those except for a couple of soldiers, right? Yeah. You just, yeah, you just soldier on. It's awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, you kind of covered it. You know, we, we can go through some things. You know, I grew up, I'm a farm kid. That's why the book talks about being the far, on the farm. Grew up in a dairy farming community, a little small town in, in Northern California, in the middle of nowhere. Wanted to go in the Navy, wanted to be a plumber. Went in the air, the Air Force took me and uh, and made me a medic, and uh, you know that starts that starts the journey all the way up through thirty years, six months, and twenty four days. There's your crazy number, <laughs> uh, all the way through that time frame, uh, through a lot of journeys, and uh, you know we can talk about anything that uh, that you want to in that in that batch. The book is really predicated on my failures, right? Uh, I, th- I think when you talk about failure, people really lean in because they want to listen because they don't want to. Maybe some people are grotesque enough that they want to they want to revel in your failure. And, and but I think most people want to see how you recovered. Right. And we talk right. a lot. Of, we talk a lot about that. Well, when we talk about veteran transition later on and what it's like coming out of an institution, especially after 30 years, what it's like coming out of an institution um, there's a lot in front of us, and some of that's got a little bit of failure in it. You know, there's, there's another learning curve. It's like starting all over again. And uh, so, yeah, we can go through some of that. But, uh, you know, I've raised a couple boys. I'm here in Montana. Uh, I, you know, I'm an outdoors guy. I like to keep doing that, try to keep moving and and uh, making a difference. So it's all about giving back, right? That's what the book's title. Right on. 100%. Yeah, exactly. You say you're from uh, Central California? Northern California. Oh, Northern. Where where in particular? And Chico. So so that beverage that Kevin's drinking comes from Chico, California, the founders. And the girl I grew up with actually dated one of the founders of that company. So for everyone curious, it's uh Sierra Nevada. Man, my light is right on it. Sierra Nevada yeah. Pale Ale. This is one of my it's probably one of my uh top three 
go-tos. It's a good beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's pretty famous. But yeah, we grew up with it when it was just a little tiny microbrew getting started. Really? So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so but just north of just north of Sacramento. All right, right ninety on. miles, ninety miles north of Sacramento. Man. Yeah, I have a bunch hey. of family that lives in Northern California, so nice place, nice yeah. place to be. Yeah, it's expensive. I mean, it was never on the short list of retiring to go back. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, Tyree, it's expensive out there. You should maybe leave. Uh, I'm working on it. So, yeah. <laughs> joining the military, why in particular did you join the particular branch that you joined? Uh, that's a great question, actually. I did kind of jump around into that. So, as a kid, I was always, I was not, I, you know, I had decided I wasn't going to go to college because school wasn't my thing. So, I'd go in the military. Unbeknownst to me, that I didn't realize I was going to be in school for the rest of my life once I got in the military. So, that, you know, that's, that's a whole different phenomenon. No, I was going to go in the Navy. I used to get up as a young kid and watch John Wayne storm the Iwo Jima beaches and the destroyers prep all the beaches for the Marines. And I was that was me. I was going to be that guy. And my junior, the end of my junior year in high school, all the recruiters show up at the high school. We all take the ASVAB test. They're all standing there. And the Navy recruiter was the biggest jack wagon on the. He was just awful. That it's a bad day. He's having a bad. And Master Sergeant John Dees put his hand on my neck and says, I think the Air Force might have a space for you. And it changed everything. And mm. I said, I just want to be a plumber. He goes, why do you want to be a plumber? I said, because I can use that skill when I get out. It pays good. He goes, okay. Got in the Air Force, got down to basic training. They turned the big uh, bingo ball thing, pulled out my bingo ball, and it said, you're going to be a medic. Best thing that ever happened to me. Totally met my aptitude. I had no idea I had any aptitude in medicine. And it led to a whole lifetime of medicine. I did independent duty medicine. You guys are soldiers. You don't have a lot of independent duty medics running around. Your 18 Delta guys are, are similar to that. But the Navy IDCs that, that run with the with the fleet Marines and that type of stuff, the Air Force has a section of that. And it led into that. And I put myself through nursing school and did shock trauma. And, and, uh, and you know, off we went. So, uh, and then... You know, that takes me into the leadership track later on. But, yeah, that's how I ended up in the Air Force. That's not... How did your okay. family uh, How did your family take you joining? Did they uh, – do you have any family in the military? So the, my family that was in the military – interesting story because we'll get to – I was in Somalia in 93 during Black Hawk Down. So there's a whole tie to this. So my family in the military, the ones that had served, were World War II vets, right? No Vietnam vets. That for some reason there's a whole void there, but they were World War II vets, like my grandmother's uncle. And we were taught, we were close when I was a young kid. He kind of took a shining to me anyway. Um, and uh, because of his service, he kind of ran some interference for me. So I didn't get any resistance on going into the military. But I will tell you that people thought I had to take the space shuttle to get from Sacramento to San Antonio. <laughs> international travel back then was a drive from Sacramento to Reno, you know, nobody yeah, just right. didn't know how to flew. And my first assignment ended up being in Spain. So just imagine how that went. Oh man. So, yeah. I was going to say, so he and I, Tyree and I were both infantry guys. And so we, we 100% um, love and respect our medics, our docs, um, regardless of the branch, you know what I mean? Cause yeah, I, like our, our doc skilling, like he's got a, he's got a special plate uh, place in our, it's a big place. Cause he's a big guy, big round, <laughs> big round guy, big round guy. Yeah. Well, if I had a patch to wear, it would have been a 10th mountain patch because every place that I went, cause you're always short medics. 
Mm-hmm. So somebody was always finding me. I mean, on an airfield, you know, a rapid rapid reaction team of Marines, nomadic. Mm-hmm. So you just end up being that guy. And every place that I went, the 10th Mountain was there. So it was just kind of, you know, to the top, man. I just, that's just kind of the way the way I kind of rolled. So I love 11 Bravo guys. You guys make great IV poles. There we go. You, you, you say, hold this, and you guys do a great job. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. We're, we're, we're pretty good at some, yeah. some of those tasks. Little yeah. to no thinking. We're all over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just stand there and it. hold us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. I love soldiers. And I've, you know, I've been with soldiers at their moment of, of reckoning and, um, uh, more than I, more than I'd care to, you know, admit. And, uh, there's just something about soldiers. It's, uh, until you've lived it and experienced and been around it, uh, unless you fully, fully understand it, you really fully can't appreciate, um, what you guys do and being in front, you know, learning to go towards things. that's unnatural and being in front and, uh, and just that whole being on the edge of things is, uh, extremely admirable. It takes special people to do it. Well, we're definitely a special bunch. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, when did you come in again? 1984. So 84 and third served over 30 years. And I don't do math in public, so I, I feel like that puts you in sometime in the two thousands. Twenty fourteen. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's that's the number. Um, so I mean, that's a wild time, right? So you're you're coming in. Uh, the Cold War is still a thing. The wall is still up yeah. in Germany. Um, tensions are in in the world are in different places. I mean, eighty four. This is uh, eight years after, if nine years yeah. after, after the official end of uh, Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to transition oh. into. Everything that happened in the eighties, um, with like, ah. uh, uh, you, you know, I was going to say Tehran, but that was right before that. Right. Um, going into everything that happened in the nineties with like Mogadishu, yeah. the yeah. Balkan Wars, and then coming yeah. into the global war on terror. I mean, that's a that's a wide range of of ex- life experience, military experience. Oh, it's so you guys are good at this. I mean, this is such lead ins. Usually, I got to you know, I kind of just go down the road. So let me give you this phenomenon. I mean, this is great for the audience because we're, we're all generational, right? And you're right. So I'm a Vietnam kid that could remember Vietnam, never, not even close enough to serve. But when I came in in 84, the guys that were raising me, especially as medics, we would go to softball games. These guys would take their shirts off and they'd have scars in both lungs because they'd been shot through both lungs in Vietnam. Those are the guys that raised me. I mean, I've got a crooked nose because my, my E7 just – decided I needed a headbutt one day and broke my nose. And I didn't turn him in or anything. As medics, you know, you just straighten things out and stop the bleeding and then have another Sierra Nevada. So so um during the Cold War, the phenomenon was this was a huge transition. This is a this is a really important time for all of us, especially if we want to, you know, we talk about veteran transition and our mental health and the things that, you know, we can't unsee and unhear and unsmell. During the Cold War, you fought from where you were at. So when I was in when I was in Spain, our job was to deploy the airplanes to Turkey and to go drop nuclear weapons on the Russians. That was the job. And once that happened, all we did was we just survived on the base. We didn't go anywhere. When you were up in the Fulda Gap in those army units, that's what you did. You got a, the tank that you sat on in the morning and did and did maintenance on was the one you were going to drive down the German streets, twenty miles down the road, and put up your defensive positions, right, or offensive positions, depending on what you were doing. So we all fought from that. There was no such thing as deployment. There was no such thing as this this rapid mobility and global mobility. We didn't have any of that. We were just static. 
And then one day, the president says, tear down the wall. The wall comes down. Things destabilize. Hussein does his thing. And if we think that we were really good at moving an army around the world and doing well at it, go back and look at the chaos that's, that's Desert Storm. What a mess. It was a mess. We didn't know how to do it. We didn't even know what to wear. I have a picture of me. It's in the book somewhere. I have a picture of me standing on the on the airfield in, uh, in Mogadishu getting ready to go on a convoy. I had a Vietnam-era flak vest on. We had the doors ripped off of the Humvees because we wanted to go fast and we wanted to have fields of fire so we could see what we were doing. Everything was completely different. And then you roll it forward to MRAPs and all the evolution that went through there and the training and the stuff. that. So there for a while, we were really chasing our tail because the, the Vietnam guys were timing out right as the time that we were starting to look like Vietnam again. And we didn't have anybody to teach us. We had to read, well, in the medical side of things, we had to learn how to, you know, we couldn't do China beach operations. We had to, you know, we had to have things down to three and four people to move stuff and to do things. Aircraft had to be done differently. So, yeah, it was, it's, it was an amazing time. And out of that came a whole crop of new leaders. We had right. certain leaders that weren't equipped, and all of a sudden you just saw that transition where that shifted. And this was this was the, the, the crop of leaders that were going to take you into the next the next fight. It almost it almost seems like every time this happens, <clears throat> where the, there's these big adjustments globally, um, the military has to uh, pretty much relearn how to do what it does. So when Tyree and I came in, I came in in 2001 before 9/11. He was in. We were both in base training when 9/11 happened. Uh, so I got to Germany late 2001. He got there in early 2002, and. <clears throat> When we would go to the field to train, we're learning Cold War tactics. Like we had the old flak uh, uh, flak jackets yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, before we deployed to Kosovo for peacekeeping operations in 2002, we had to do a one for one exchange with our flak jackets for um, IBA yeah. um, with the plates and all that stuff. Uh, so, it, it, you know, before we went to Iraq in 2004, all of 2003, when we were out training, we're out in the woods, we're chasing down bimps, and we're doing Cold War tactics. And a lot of us were like, well, we're, we know we're going to a city. How is this going to help? I mean, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Any kind of training helps. Right. But, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a really interesting time because if it, to me, in retrospect, it looked like we were just kind of relearning how to do war because, um, I think we had one guy in the company who had a combat infantry badge from the Gulf War and that was it. We had a handful, um, but you know, they were, the higher ranking folk, not folk that we would normally, me and you would normally deal with. Yeah. 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 So About it just, just kind of I mean, feels like things do change quite rapidly. I mean, look at war now it's drones and all kind of, kind of other yeah. things. So, Oh, I mean, yeah. Even, even from when we were over there, you know, uh, 19 years ago, yeah. uh, to, to, to the, the final years of G Watt, like it's a completely different war. Um, so with your with your experiences um, over your thirty years, mm-hmm. and 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 covering this this broad range of this global change, um, and and the overall climate of that, um, you talked about getting into your failures and how you can learn from them. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, I I have a feeling because I mean there that's that's a lot of change over a lot of time, and so there's a lot of opportunity to learn from these failures. Um, so with that being said, like, so what is like some of like, what are your more, some, some of your more like notable 
uh, things that you get into? Well, I'll tell you, leading people in general is a thing. I mean, there, there, you, you need somebody to pay attention to you. Leading people generationally is a thing, and then leading people in a diverse environment is a thing. And you got to be really agile, and you need to have help. Now, the military tries really hard to build that structure. And if you know, you know, we start PME early, right? If you do four years in the army, you're going to do at least one level of PME. You're going to get something, right? So, so we start those things. I will tell you, and I can give you, I can give you some specifics that are not very exciting, but they're they're tremendous failures. Um, not learning my people initially was a huge fail. That transition from when you wake up in the morning, your number one priority is your people and getting it off of your being yourself was a huge, it was, now I wouldn't say I was so behind the power curve on coming to the realization that, hey, now that I lead people, I'm actually, you know, I'm actually responsible to their mom and dads, right? Because they've turned them over to us and we're responsible for making sure that they have their well-being. Uh, I wasn't slow to come to that realization, but I had enough people underneath me that I would screw that up. And I think that there's people that got out of the service because of my poor attention to detail of taking care of them. And, and so why did that happen? Well, I didn't have people that were interested in taking care of people taking care of me. Some of these Vietnam vets, you guys weren't raised by Vietnam vets. This was a brutal time. They didn't cut any slack. Most of them, I had a my first supervisor, non-vet, uh, E7, second supervisor. I was in, in Spain, and he ran the emergency room, and I had gone to the ED to work. He would bring two pairs of car keys and two hats to work. And he'd go in his office in the morning. He'd turn the lights on. He'd put one of the hats with the car keys inside of the hats right on the side of his desk. And he would go home and drink the rest of the day. And when people would look for him, they'd say, he's got to be around here somewhere because his hat and keys are there. Those True old story. tricks. Those old tricks. You got to know the, the way to get over. Like you got to walk around fast with a clipboard so no one ever asks he, you a question. I know. Or keep something in your hand, right? Yeah. Just hold something in your hand and you're good to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. So, so those guys were never teaching me how to take care of people. So there was a huge, there was a huge learning curve. I'd say some of the other failures was were um, even later on. You can't get caught up in your own hype because sometimes you're doing well. You're the soldier of the month, soldier of the year, damn it, that kind of stuff. You can get really caught up in your own hype and getting promoted and those type of things. And I know when we tra- and we'll talk a little bit about this. When we transition to the civilian world, we're terrible about telling our story the right way. We're so overly humble. Right. That people are like, well, this guy is boring. He didn't sell himself. They hire other people or you don't get you don't get positions. So we need to do a better job of talking ourselves up. But you can really get you can really get caught up in the hype. And um, that's not how it works because people end up getting hurt. If you're in combat, people end up getting hurt because it's about the guy to your right and left. Right. Absolutely. So so um, I'd say I'd say, you know, if you want specific stories, I can break a couple down for you. But I'd say that learning curve um, uh, were the failures that, when I run back through my mind, were the biggest teaching moments. Because it's turned me into, you know, as as, as corny as it may sound, it's turned me into an ultra empath. 
You know, I've got a whole key. I've got a whole keynote speech that's called "Closing the Twenty Five Yard Gap." I was made a squad leader in basic training on my fourth day. I had twelve guys I was responsible for. I, the only thing that a number of twelve that I was ever responsible for was twelve cows to milk, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got these twelve guys that I'm responsible for. I come from the middle of nowhere, Northern California. The flights full of the the flights full of you know people from all over the United States. And the barracks is 25 yards long. And I made a lot of mistakes by making assumptions in those 25 yards about all the people in that in that 25-yard span instead of getting off my butt and walking down and finding out. And the reason that I didn't was because in there is a scary space because you're going to go ask – you're going to look kind of silly because you're going to ask basic questions that you don't know anything about and you have to close those gaps. And so it started right there. I mean, my it's a beautiful journey, I mean, there's the conversations that I had on the sides of my bunk in basic training in December of 1984 have shaped my whole entire life. It's changed the way I see people. It's changed the way I interact with people. Not much, not much bothers me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that if I'm walking down the street and a bunch of homeless people are sitting around, I'll go look them in the eye and ask how they're doing and have a 20 minute conversation with them. Cause, and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm talking to another human being and I'm going to learn something. You know, so yeah, you wouldn't yeah. fit around very well here in California. Now, you know, we don't like to talk to anybody except our phones and uh, Twitter. Right, you, right. What was the the you say the you got to have different kind of conversations with other people in basic, and then you get to Spain, and you know, you say the leadership was not exactly how you imagined it. How did that feel? Like, man, you're pumped to go to your first duty station, and you get there, and you're like, man, this is not exactly how i thought it would be right so you guys remember when you got out of basic training how you felt right you wanted mm-hmm. to go home put on your pt gear and run around the town right yeah. so everybody could see you t- we all did it mm-hmm. all of us yeah. right yeah. so everybody see the army and oh well, you're back you know and you're lean and mean and feeling good and and some girl that would never have an eye for you she's got her eye that's you know it's it's happened to all of us man it's oh, yeah, happened to all of us. that's definitely a yeah. thing yeah it's a total thing <laughs> So you're standing straight and, you know, when I got, I got to Spain and I run into, you know, NCO and it's not about Vietnam vets. It's just about the, you know, you got to think they come out of the war and now they're in this cold war environment. So they're coming around, they're coming out of this thing and now it's just static, right? It's just day over day over day. And so it's not a Vietnam vet thing. It's just a, it's a leadership thing. Yeah. You know, I get onto the first job. My first job in the air force was delivering babies. It's a great job for a medic. It's a perfect job because you let all your basic skills get squared away, all your surgical skills and your and your uh, your uh, you know IV skills and all those things get squared away. And I remember I was on my second shift, no stripes, airman, basic, nobody. And I'm on my second shift, and I said to the major at the he was he was working. I said, Major, blah 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 blah, and he turned around. And he said, Don't call me Major. My name's Don or Doctor. I worked a lot harder to get my doctor degree than I did these major things. And it was like, just, you might as well just stuck a pin in me. Mm. Right. Because all this, this I'm in the military and there's the structure and I'm part of a team and all that stuff. And then this major turns around and just basically says, you know, here's two things that are much more important than, than what you, than what you're serving. So it was, yeah, it was a little, it was a little cockeyed. My my training instructor in basic training was a former Marine, Vietnam guy. He'd show up drunk in the middle of the night just to pick on us in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. I, 
Wow. It was a thing. Times different times different, for sure. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and and so I, I, I kind of there's a there's a I think there's an interesting parallel between when when you came in and these 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 Vietnam veterans are now you know living in a static military and to current times where now you know combat operations are over quote unquote mm-hmm. and um you know GWAT is 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 over even though we have people all over the world doing things right. our military once again finds itself in a static position mm-hmm. and i'm wondering and and I, and I and I and I say this um, not necessarily as as an insult to to you know past generations or the the right. current folks that are in, but like I wonder if uh, leadership will take or uh, will take a hit because you know over the last twenty years a lot of things have kind of gone to the wayside, right? Um, uh, so I'm a drill sergeant in the reserves, uh, so I've been doing that job for quite a while, and so I've I've been able to see. From from my time in basic training in 2001 to my first time on the trail in 2009 to my last time on the trail, which was last year, um, to the, the just be, to be able to see how the at least the army has transitioned from what they deem important. You know, like when we were in basic in 2001, I mean, drill and ceremony was drilled into our heads. If you can't stand that attention, you can't do anything else in the army because that is the most simple task you will ever do. To now, it's just you know what what is drone ceremony, um, and so I wonder if if you know going into the next few years, depending on the the global climate, um, uh, if we're going to see kind of a resurgence of you know people that that no, don't necessarily know what to do in terms of proper leadership, and the army trying to get back to you know what is supposed to matter in a garrison. Uh, in a garrison army or in a garrison military. What are your thoughts? What do you think? So, um, no, I think you're right. Uh, I think the phenomenon I kind of lived through, you know, when I was on my third sidearm, third gas mask, and third uniform, I knew it was time to retire, right? Because mm. everybody's got their way, except it was still a uniform and it was still a gas mask, you know, everybody, but everybody's always tweaking on things. Listen, if you study history, you'll find out, um, and this was the, this was the, uh, you know, even if you go back to the Civil War and you look at the, the Union leaders and, you know, Abraham Lincoln just struggled with his generals because they picked the generals for the wrong reasons. Right. They picked the generals out of political positions. These were people that were very successful in building the army and building the logistics and and building all of that structure. But they weren't leaders. And so who ended up being leaders? These guys that they had never even earmarked for being generals, and they popped them to the top. Because if you put them in bunch of in front of a bunch of men, not only were they aggressive and got the mission accomplished, but but uh, there was you know a certain level of courage and bravery, and and they had a natural knack of getting people to follow them to the cannon fire, right? So the sine waves on leadership and and the military are inverted, right? So as you're switching out leadership to try and meet the current state, what you should what you'll, you should see now is is that our three and four star generals will probably start to morph into more bureaucratic political type generals that can handle those stages. These are guys that fly to you know Ethiopia tomorrow, and you know they're envoys. They got a uniform on. They got four stars on. They hold some some senior position, but they're envoys. They're not the strategists. They're not the the, the sandbox guys and those sandbox guys will get held back for a little bit 
And then all of a sudden something's going to happen. There's going to be a call to action and there's going to be gaps. And um, then you'll see that shift. But it's always a little bit behind. So I think the phenomenon that you've seen is, is that because of where our country's at right now, uh, the military has always been the test bed for social experimentation. Always. You know, the Air Force was the first to integrate, right? They, they, the Air Force took that on and said, we'll integrate. And I think it was because they were so new, it was just the easiest to, to do. But think about when I, when I came in in 1984, people were getting letters of reprimand for, for smoking pot. The theory on drinking and driving was we didn't practice enough. Everybody, the two places everybody hung out were the smoke pit and the office and the NCO club, right? And 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 then this is when I came in. And then it's transitioned to you went to jail if you were smoking pot. Now everybody hangs out at the education office in the gym, right? And and I went through you if you were homosexual, you were out. In fact, and I served my first couple of assignments, I had a lot of people I served with that were homosexual probably disproportionate about to don't ask don't tell which was a feeble way of getting around that to serve serve openly you know openly gay to now we we inherit all the other the social things that are going on and shifting that way it's hard to lead in that environment what kind of leader do you pick to do that right. what do they look like what's their backgrounds how what's their pme do what do we change pme to, to cover some of these things to to do those kind of things. What is that like? So I think that I, I think where you're going is do we have the right leaders today? Will we have the right leaders tomorrow? And how do we figure all that out? And I don't think here's what we don't know. There's nobody there's I'm gone. I've been out for nine years. There, if I was still in, I would be the go-to guy right now to teach people how to have an in-garrison force. Because here's what's going to happen to the United States Army. I'll tell you what's going to happen to the United States Army. All your discipline issues are going to go up by between 10 and 20%. Within the next year, they're going to be through the roof. Your recruiting and your retention rates will be all shifted. And so you're going to lower your recruiting standards to the, or, or raise them wherever they're at. You're going to get that balance so that you can get, cause you got everybody's behind on the recruiting numbers, but you're going to figure that out and you're going to bring those people in and all your retention strategies are going to be towards retaining the soldier. Well, a soldier in garrison gets retained differently than a soldier that's, that's, you know, um, uh, on a, on a, on a, uh, on a rotational cycle, wherever they're at in the, in the, in the, um, and a rip tower. So, so who leads that and who's left to lead that? And I I guess in your question, I hear a little bit of concern. I'm not going to reassure you. We're going to have to go through a cycle is what it's going to be. So it's going to be up to, so you're going to have a certain bunch of people that need a certain type of leadership. And then you're going to have master Sergeant Bill Davis who breaks your nose in your second assignment. Well, and I think it's like what you said, um, going back to the Civil War with the Union uh, troops and or the, the generals, the ones that would eventually come to lead successfully um, were were those people that, you know, you don't hear about much and who can adapt to the current environment and and can can get in front of these people, right. whether it be soldiers, Marines, airmen, uh, you know, Navy, naval personnel and can say, hey, <clears throat> I understand what's going on. I I want to help. I want to lead, and yeah. those are the people that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna 
lead on to the future. But I think you're right. It's going to be uh, there's going to be a, a, a gap or a void, a generational skip or something where we're going to have the military wide is going to have a, uh, a an interesting and difficult transition into what the future looks like, um, which I think is a pretty decent segue into. OK, so you talk about with 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 Max Fab Consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, transitioning out of the military, yeah. and 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 I, I kind of want to go back to when you said you, you know you just got out of basic training, you get to your first duty duty station in Spain, you're all gung ho, ready to go. Um, everybody has a rank, and that's what I'm going to call them when I'm standing parade rest or attention. Mm-hmm. And this major's like, don't call me that. Uh, it's Don or Doctor. Yeah. Um, I mean that's a transition right there. Yeah. And real early. You do, I mean, right off the bat. Yeah. 30 years later, you're, you're, you know, you, you've made it to E9. Mm-hmm. Um, one might say completely indoctrinated and, 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 and drank the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. Hold and that word. You... Hold that indoctrinated <laughs> word. That's a good word. And then you, and then you transition to uh, being uh Mr. Instead of uh, yeah. the, the really long air force title that you guys have. <laughs> Command chief. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't, I don't know what the shortened version is. I just know that it's like 15 letters long. Chief, yeah. Um, so there's a few things going on there. There's a few, few things for the, for the transition piece. One is indoctrination is a real thing and you're indoctrinated at four years or, or 40. So that's, that's just a thing. And you know that, and you're getting ready to go through that. In fact, you should probably call me offline and we can have a long conversation about that because here's the one thing that I know is I'm smarter then the chief of staff or the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his SEAC. The SEAC's a friend of mine right now. The SEAC that's serving right now is a friend of mine. We kind of grew up in the command chain together. Um, I'm smarter than them on one issue, and that's veteran transition. The DOD does not know how to do veteran transition. In fact, they take swings at it, and they think that they have some idea of what that means. But until you do it, you don't know. Until you're the fourth guy, you know. You know how many people in, in Billings, Montana, know what a command chief is. I one of our elected officials in the county here is an Air Force brat. His dad was an officer. When I go to the county to do stuff, if I run into him and he's there, he he stops everybody in the room and says, "Dave was the chief. Do you know what a chief is?" And he gives him this whole explanation on what a, an Air Force command chief is, right? Because he feels that he needs to do that because he knows that nobody knows and it's a credibility thing and he knows I'm not going to go into the end of the whole tirade uh, to do that. So institutionalization is a real thing. So it's a transition, this civilian transition and, and the stuff that I'm working on with, with vet ready is really about um, there's no bridge. There's a lot of stuff out here. There's everything from wounded warriors to X, Y, Z and horses and cows and pigs and chickens and dogs. It's all out here. It's not organized. We have an epidemic in our, in our, in our veteran population with substance abuse and suicide that, that should be an emergency. And, you know, when we solve emergencies with public private partnership. So when you go into your employer's realm, whatever that is, to be a plumber, to, to work in a sandwich shop or, you know, to go into, you know, finance or whatever it is. 
and your employer has no idea about the institution you came from, the language that you speak, the stuff that we've been talking about. I'm more comfortable now talking to the two of you than I will be tomorrow in three or four conversations with people I know. Because it's just it's just what, what we are and what we do. So I get to an institution, right? I get to a, an organization, right? And the first thing is they don't know what I am. So I get a title. I'm a coordinator, a manager, maybe even a director. I get a, I get a title. And you kind of fall in line with that bureaucratic title. And then you start looking around and every meeting starts five minutes late. And and uh, some people are straggling in or they're not showing up. and They're not meeting their timelines. And so they're all savages, right? Undisciplined savages, right? Because that's what we think they are. And actually, it's just they're normal. Yeah. Um, if, if you say anything about it, they start to they, they, that starts starts to, to kind of grate. It starts to, to look as a negative. And then they have no idea our, um, our expertise. And I'm not talking about your ability to take down an AR-15 and put it back together. I know you know how to do that. But, but um, what I'm talking about is your ability to problem solve any problem. Throw it on the table. The three of us, we could, do, we could go to a company right now we knew nothing about, say, give us your two hardest problems, throw it on the table and put the three of us in the room. And when we walked out of there, they would say, oh, we never thought of that. And it would probably be the solution because we would just we would just work it. But they don't have an appreciation for that, nor do they, they see a need for that. So right now, 40, so 43 out of every 100 veterans that, that get out. of So we create 1,300 new veterans every day in this country. So if you add in their families, it's about a, the town the town I grew up in, 5,000 people every day come out of this institution. They come off of the planet Klingon and they land back on Earth. Now, we're not any different than prisoners. If I was in jail for 30 years and I was in the military for 30 years, I've been institutionalized, right? And so if I took a prisoner, did nothing with him, dropped him in the middle of downtown Billings, Montana, are the odds that he's going to do something wrong and go back to prison or he's going to become a tax-paying citizen? No, he's probably going to go back. He, but he gets to go back to his planet. We don't have the option to go back to our planet, and here we are. Wow! So when when you're dropped in the middle of society as a veteran, what's there for you? Well, there's some people that tell you to sit up straight, wear a tie, brag about yourself. Here's your resume. Go get a job. And when you get a job, they say, "Hey, statistically, we placed 99 out of 100 veterans next month." And I tell them, I would say to them, and half of them will be gone in the next year. Because the, the civilian institutions are not veteran ready. So what happens? You quit your job. You end up in the bar. Uh, you lose your sense of purpose. You don't want to talk to anybody. Some of us come with, with scary stuff like PTSD, moral injury. We can talk about that. I own, I own both of those. And, and, um, and so we turn to our three favorite counselors, right? The most ready counselors, Jim, Johnny, and Jack, because they're always there. They're our best buddies. Right. And they shut off all of that stuff for us until we wake up in the morning. And then we got to, you know, we got to re, re, uh, re, remake our friendship. And you can get an aspire. I've lived all this. I've been through the wash, rinse, spin, drive, fold cycle. I've, I've, I've done all of it. I'm on the back end of this. And you heard me say I own PTSD and I own moral injury because I choose to do that now. I'm not going to let it drive me anymore. It gives me energy. I use the energy for the right things like this, this type of stuff. So, when you're in the military, you're going through transitions and that type of stuff is, is, is very radical and you're institutionalized. When you come out the back end, the day that they pat you on the back 
and say, thank you. You have your retirement ceremony. You're going to get one of these. It's going to be cool. They're going to fold flags. They're going to play music. They're going to do all of this stuff. It's going to be great. You're going to have some beers with the guys at the end of work. And then you got you get up the next day and you walk out there and somebody goes, you're a veteran. And that's one word and with one connotation. And most people think that veterans all have PTSD. And if you make them mad at work, they come back with a with an automatic weapon and clean out the the, the workspace. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, that's a stupid. So we need to, you know, we collectively as a as a as brothers and sisters have got to work on that. But I'm tired of making the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardman, you know, guardian. Now, I'm I'm tired of making them continue to carry the ruck. When do they get to set their ruck down and somebody else pick it up? If you're going to say thank you for my service, most people that are truly thankful usually back that up with, what can I do for you? This is what they can do. So programmatically, I've set I've set up vet ready so that I can go into civilian organizations and teach them all of this. Everything I talked to you about plus to include HR processes. If I show up in your in your place of employment and I'm in a wheelchair and I'm I'm deaf in my right ear and you want to hire me you know what my cubicle needs to look like what the ramps need to look like what the bathroom door needs to look like you're going to appoint somebody to get me out of the place during a fire and you're going to tell everybody in this in the duty section about my my ear deafness and what side to stay on to communicate when I show up as a veteran they just say get in line and they don't know what we come with yeah and it's it's a struggle kevin didn't you say like uh more than once that while you're working your co-workers have asked hey have you have you seen anything crazy they don't know they exactly like you're saying mm-hmm. dave they have no idea how to speak to us because like you say they expect us to explode and that's really terrible it, it draws us out of wanting to work around those people because of the ignorance um I was a police officer for a while and I let everyone know I was a veteran. I wore a CIB on my uniform. Like you're going to know I was a veteran. Not, not because, you know, uh, it's like a cocky thing. It's just, I love the fact that I can wear this and somebody else can see it and they'll stop what they're doing and they'll come on over and talk to me about it. We can have a full blown conversation. Just two veterans who've had no contact with each other before. But now, today, man, it's not the same kind of environment at work. For one, most people are still working at home and trying to figure out a way not to uh, go to the office. Mm-hmm. And two, once they get there, they still don't want to talk to each other. Like you said, it's just a coldness, cold world. It, do your job and go home. Punch in, punch out. It's not like uh, the military where we're there all the time. Well, and, and that's one of the drawbacks, right? Mm-hmm. You, I tell people all the time. You hire us. We show up an hour early for work. We work an hour and a half late. We check our emails on Saturday. We clean some stuff up on Sunday. We show up on Monday morning and we're rip-roaring ready to go. And you're not even into the right amount of cups of coffee until about 930. You think you're an asset. They think you're an ass. Mm -hmm. And it starts right there. And so um, so there's some veteran teaching, too. I mean, you got to talk to the vets and say, guys, you know, gals, guys and gals, you know, this this is what we look like. Because, they, you know, they, there's a perception. So there has to be some work on our side. But that, that piece that you talked about, I've told people now, especially my family, stop telling veterans thank you for your service. 
If you really want to engage with them, ask them their story. I've never met a veteran that just will not. And and you're going to get the full-blown gig. I said, because once they're done telling you your story, their, their story, you'll be smarter. You'll have a certain level of empathy. And if you really shut your mouth and listen, you might have a way to phrase that question without sounding ignorant. Yeah. No, that's a real thing. Um, so as a reservist, I mean, I've had a lot of civilian jobs. I mean, I, I work now at the VA and everybody that I work with is, a, is, is prior service and all the people that I transport um, and all the people I transport are obviously veterans and um, amazing stories, great people. And I, and I love every bit of it, but like I've worked in the civilian sector and I'll tell you what, this is one thing that a lot of people in the military don't um, understand when you get out your um, your achievement medals and your commendation medals and your rifle qualification medals, none of that matters, right? None of that matters. But what, what does matter? The <clears throat> discipline that you learned while in, the fact that you can do any shit job that's put in front of you and complete it um, within a set time frame satisfactorily, like probably above and beyond, um, you can show up on time, you can be aware, you can work hard, you can outwork everybody around you, right? These are skills that we learned in the military. And a lot of people, when they, when they, when they, when they transition out, they say, well, I'm, I'm done with whatever branch I was in. I'm going to go be a civilian and I'm going to get this job and I'm just going to be a part of the civilian world and just do what they do. And if like, like you said, it doesn't matter if you did four years or 40 years, you're indoctrinated. And it's true. We we do go through an indoctrination process. That's the whole point in basic training or boot camp right. to indoctrinate you, to prepare you for your service. When you get out, you still have that. And you can use that successfully in the civilian world. Now, I wish when I, when, when I transitioned off of active duty and I was looking for civilian employment, I wish that I'd had something that I could have... Uh, referred back to right because our, our my transition out was hey so you're leaving the army uh good luck yeah and that was that right and and so job interviews resume writing uh things of that nature like i i had no clue had no idea what i was doing i i interviewed for an entry-level management job at the largest corporation in the world retail corporation in the world um and during the interview this lady asked me a question she's like tell me about a time when you had to make a tough decision as a leader and you had to make a, a split a, a split second decision that you know would have had great impact on the team blah 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 and the only thing i can think about in that moment because i was a little i was i had a little bit of anxiety because I, I get uh interview anxiety pretty bad but um this time in iraq where one of our buddies got shot and we had to i saw the guy that shot him and my another buddy of mine had to take a rooftop position, and we saw that guy driving away in a car, and I couldn't get a hundred percent positive identification, so I had to tell my buddy, "Hey, man, let's." He could have opened up with the machine gun, and like, "No, nah, we can't," because I, I don't have a hundred percent PID. You know what I mean? And so, the, in my mind, that's what I'm trying to think of, and I'm trying to, re, I'm trying to like, how do I say this in civilian terms, in a way that like, you know, explains my thought process in this like split second. And she was like, I just don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Could you try again? And I was like, I gave up and I was like, I basically had to tell my buddy to not kill this guy because I couldn't uh, confirm that it was him. 
And she was like, you know, just aghast at the, at the fact that I said kill. You're probably not supposed to say kill in, in, in interviews. But if, if there were companies um, like what you're doing, where you can you can talk to these civilian employees and be like, listen, these guys have a certain skill set. That's another thing too. A lot of these civilian employment companies they don't know what our uh, what the things on our DD two fourteen. They don't know what that stuff means. They don't know what we can bring to the table. I mean, like you said earlier, you might have a company that says we hire veterans, and sure they might for entry level jobs, janitors and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm great at pushing a broom, but I have leadership skills. I have can-do attitude. I have discipline. Um, and, and and sure, maybe I can get on and I can work my way through those ranks and eventually get to a position where I can actually like use those skills. But like as 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 civilian employers, you know, a lot of them could stand to have a lesson on what it is that we're actually trained to do outside of, you know, defending our nation and the constitution. A lot of it has to do with the particular job, like I said, with a, I was a cop forever. I remember my interview process. We were never asked anything like that because they know we can do it. There was our, our leadership that were police officers. 95% of them were prior service. It's a beautiful thing to go from the military to something like the police. It's the same thing. Uh, I wish more people would be on board with that. It's not, terrible to go from something that you feel like you've been indoctrinated to into something similar. It's an easy transition transition for you as long as you can deal with being around more military folk, because that's what it is at that point. Um, but that's a good point that you brought up with the whole, everything that you explained there, that it's, it's just really hard for us to, blend in with the people who just don't understand us. And the only way that they're going to understand us is if we actually talk to them. Right. Got to talk, yeah. got to speak up. And, and sometimes you got to talk about some ugly shit. Sometimes you don't have to talk about that stuff. You can lead the conversation someplace else. You're in the, you're in the driver's seat, man. Uh, but you just have to talk to people. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in organizations before where I've had people that, that really come around quick and it's about putting things in perspective and, and and I don't overuse this or abuse it. I can tell you on this many, on this, on this one hand, how many times, but I've been in some stuff that civilians have thought have been really, really stressful and they're freaking, I mean, they are freaking out. I mean, they think that the world's going to come apart and, and there's, there's no, there's no life and death involved in any of this. And I can remember during COVID when I was working at the hospital, we didn't even have one case of the virus in Montana yet. And people are freaking out. And then somebody came to me in the room, and I'm the emergency manager. My graduate degree is in disaster emergency management. So I'm the guy that tells you which way to go when the hurricane's coming, right? And so, and COVID's right in my wheelhouse. And they're going on and on. And finally, one of the senior people looked at me and they said, Dave, they said, what do you think? And I said, I think that there's no body bags involved in any of this. And the room, and everybody looked at me and I said, this is not that big a deal. If you, first of all, if you take a deep breath and you calm down, this is all going to get easier. You know, firemen are much more relaxed people when the fire's out. 
So just put some water on the fire. Just it's going to be okay. Some people really appreciate that. For me, that was a quantum leap backward with some senior leaders. Because you're a threat. You're a threat because we come with a lot of stuff. It's pretty magical stuff. And we're pretty proud of it. You know, there's not a lot, there's not a lot going on. I told somebody that maybe this will give your audience a little bit of a giggle. Our country right now is full of first world problems. And until you've been in a third world country and seen what that looks like, or or actually had a third world problem, I guess I could say I've had a couple in my life. But, you know, I saw a guy get shot in the forehead over a bottle of water in the middle of Mogadishu. That's a third world problem. That's basic human needs. When we had our last major event in this country, which was called COVID, we all ran and got toilet paper. Our anal cleanliness was the was the, the need that we we don't have any issues. Besides the ones we create. But look at but look at our prism. When we get in the middle of that and we see this out in the civilian, it doesn't it doesn't get to our gonculator very well because we're like, this is weak. That's the word we use. It's the first word. We go, this is weak. <laughs> Who is that guy? Right? And so we we can't pass judgment on them. And so you guys know as well as I do, in the in the in the presence of ignorance, if you want to succeed as a team, you have to clean that up, and that requires training and teaching. So, you know, I'm going to do my part. I can't do it. I can't do it everywhere. But if I can build a program uh, and and get it out, and it's starting to move, get it out where it's got legs. I should be able to call one of the two of you and say, "Here's a slide deck." Go to Xerox mm-hmm. and stand up there and talk about this phenomenon, and especially Tyree, because you've been a cop. So now you're double institutionalized and double public service. And I don't know where you were a cop, but but your your um, viewpoint on putting the uniform on and going to work had a had a uh, uh, a pretty serious connotation to it. It's, there's danger. There's potential life threatening danger in your life all the time, and you continue to take that on. So I mean, you have a you've got a third perspective in there with our with our with our public servants, non military public servants that deal with some of the same stressors. That's a big deal. Yeah, I think there was more stress on the police side than the military side, only because you deal with these civilians who you cannot you you can't count on. No, no, I can't. I won't say you can't count. They're so unpredictable. You are going to roll in. I was LAPD. You're going to roll into the craziest situations constantly. And hopefully you have a partner who understands how to deal with things. If not, you're it's on you. You have to deal with this. And sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's funny. But ultimately, you're able to work with your partner and figure it out because you communicate. You that was to- one of my favorite things. Sorry to cut you off. I didn't know you were saying more words. Um, but... <laughs> We, I know you've mentioned in the past before and um, about your, your your time in the Army and our, and our deployments to Kosovo and Iraq and then your time as an LAPD and how you saw more fucked up shit. You had to deal with the a, a more worse side of humanity than when we were deployed to a war zone as a cop. And that's always kind of sat with me because um, 
you know, because it's just we're we're in our home. We're in the the borders of our nation. We're in the borders of our town. Where our everybody here speaks the same language. We're all supposed to be towards the same goal, which is the betterment of at least the American people. And here we are tearing ourselves apart. And I mean, and just like Dave said, like I mean, you're double institutionalized, but more so on the LAPD side because you know, like your your training that's involved in that, like what you have to do as a cop and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's, it's a big it's a big deal, dude. Tyree, when I um when I passed my nursing boards and got my national certification in emergency nursing, I was stationed at Travis okay. in, in Fairfield. Mm-hmm. So I started moonlighting. Well, you know where I went and moonlighted? Oakland, Richmond, San Pablo. Oh wow. So yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. Stuff, yeah. The stuff that uh, the stuff that came through there. Well, we had a cop in the nurses station. It was so bad. I was checking weapons at triage. Mm-hmm. It it shouldn't and, be and, like that. Well, it's isn't it a head scratcher? It is the 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 craziest part about it to me is uh, you expect as a in if you're in the military you expect to go to combat and you expect to see the worst you expect to see the bad things but if you are going on a regular radio call that is just a four fifty like a loud radio. You know, a guy screaming in the street and you get there and you go into the house and he's killed everybody. Ugly, not just a shot in the head. And now you have to go deal with that. Yeah. It's, and it's and it's. um, uh, And then you've got to, I don't know if you're married, but then you got to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the, combat, in the combat zone, you get to go hang with your brothers. Going home and picking up your kid. Or that kind of thing. That's there's a whole phenomenon. That's a whole different. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, there's a lot of so, things I just don't talk about or had didn't talk about uh, because again that that has to stay at home. That has to stay at work. Yeah. Uh, oh, if absolutely. you're in the army, yeah, okay. When you're off duty hours, yeah, you can go hang out with your friends, but you're still there. You're still at work. With the police, you can, you have the opportunity to leave it at work, but sometimes it's very difficult. Because you're going to see I, some things that you just can't can't shut it off. From my time in Mogadishu on, I spent a lot of time being mad, being mad, Tyree. Mm. It's just I don't. That was my emotion, I guess. And the only way to shut the mad off, right, was to just pour a little Jack Daniels on it. I haven't had a drink in five years. It's the best thing I ever did in my life. Oh, the yeah. clarity of my life is unbelievable, and it's pushed me to where I'm at. It's it let me it let me wake up one day and say, okay, I've got these two little buddies here. This this you know, there's lots of stories that go with this, but I got my moral injury buddy and I got my PTSD buddy. And guess what? We're going to go get some help. I drug them on down to a place and I went into a place and I got some help. My therapist is from, she's a, she's a refugee from war torn Armenia. Wow. She totally gets it. She's the best. She totally gets it. And then I have to reverse charges on her because she has so military, so many military clients. If I draw one more Napoleonic chart on a board so that she can understand the rank structure of the military, because mm-hmm. guys come in and they're complaining about, you know, my, my, you know, my staff sergeant or, you know, my sergeant first or whatever. She goes, how does this work? And I'm on the board drawing and, and trying to teach her how to do it. It's pretty cool. That's yeah, good that but you're trying to explain it to her because a lot of people would just be like this person. I don't want to deal with them because they don't understand it. So yeah, whatever. Well, uh, it's, and that's the mission next, right? The mission mm-hmm. next is, is that we can't go back to our culture, but, but our, we bring our culture with us. And so why not teach it? It's, 
you know, it's no different than tribal stuff, right? Two tribes meet, and what do they do? They try to find something in common, and then they share their their non-common things. And then they build respect for each other based on on why they have those those values. Because one thing about you being in the police department that is that probably helped you out that really hurts veterans is, um, and one of the things I do when I teach is I have a video of the Soldier's Creed and the Airman's Creed and the Sailor's Creed, and I play it out loud. Because if you think about those words that we say in the Creed, that's real stuff. So you go into a civilian institution, and they've got integrity, excellence, collaboration written on the board as their core values, and the boss is screaming across the shop floor, everybody needs steel-toed boots on, and he's in Bermuda shorts and open-toed sandals. You're looking, you're out. Because mm-hmm. everything else is BS from that point on. Yeah. So we're pretty hard. We're pretty critical. We're pretty hard. <laughs> we're hard on the rest of society after we've done our thing. I like how you put that, though. <clears throat> Two tribes that come together to find that, like the one or two common things that they have and then sharing the uncommon. I mean, if that doesn't really kind of explain, uh, you know, a prior service person in the civilian world, because I mean, that's what that is, right? We it's, it's, I mean, cause the military, we're a subculture of the American culture or beyond and you get out, you transition out and now you have to adapt to the civilian world where you're of a different tribe now and you're trying to blend in with this new tribe. Well, what do you have in common? Okay, I, I have this. This I, I I have these skills that I can uh, bring to the to this workforce. Okay, well now that's what you have in common. What do you not have in common, and what can I learn from them, and what can they learn from me? And that's mm-hmm. utilizing those skills and bettering the company that you're working for, bettering yourself because now everyone benefits from from this process. But going into it with that with that with that that state of mind, because um, that's a part of it too. You had mentioned earlier about in the service, you know, don't get too caught up in your hype. Right. And and, and a lot of people do that. I'm Billy badass. I have this tab and that tab and these Mm -hmm. badges and these awards and my ribbon rack goes all the way up to my collarbone. I've done all the things. So, you know, respect me. Right. When you get out of the military, none of that shit matters. Right. But at the same time, when you at the same time, like those, those, they, they matter in a completely different way because again, you have shown that you can do things now, in the military, control your hype, right? Be proud of what you've done, but be humble about it. When you come into the civilian market, be proud of what you've done, be humble about it, but talk about it. You know, talk like, hey, man, it. like when I went to ranger school and I learned how to stay awake for 52 hours for no reason, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's it, it, you know, it's about finding like and you mentioned this earlier, too, about finding that balance between hype and humble yeah. and um. And uh, and it sounds to me like that's 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 more or less what Max Fab uh, is about. Like you know, like obviously training these uh, civilian employers. Hey man, listen, these guys bring these guys and gals bring something great to the table. It's time to open up your minds to what they have. Hey, military personnel, former military personnel, you have all these things to bring to the table. Let's 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 find your tribe and blend that stuff. Let's be let's 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 uh, bring the hype, but be humble. Mm-hmm. Let's nurture yeah. this. Let's not yeah. shut it down. Can you can you imagine if if civilian organization? First of all, the first question I ask is how many veterans do you have in your organization? And if somebody can't give me an answer of like twenty seven or one hundred and sixty one, then they probably need to be vet ready. I mean, they should know because it's a subset. They can tell you how many handicapped people they have. 
Mm-hmm. Right? They can they can give you those numbers. So that's a subset in your correct. Can you imagine if once a week or once every other week they just had a problem solving session where every veteran in the organization paid got to come to a large area and somebody in senior leadership walked in and said, We're having trouble getting this box to this town in two days like we're supposed to. For some reason we can't figure it out. And leave that problem in that room for ninety minutes. It's fixed. Mm-hmm. Several different it's, ways. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You're gonna right. You'll have five. You'll have five options. Mm-hmm. Right. And and one yeah. of them will be one of them will be totally unacceptable. But yeah. it'll still right. be funny. Completely yeah, unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. It'll be hilarious. Right. But but it'll be funny. You know. It'll it'll be the it'll be the you know. Here's here's the one. I the employers don't even think like this. Because it's like having a secret weapon in your organization. Learn how to use it. You know, that reminds me of, uh, I had just read this article. Um, gosh, it's been, it's probably been about a month or two now. Some, 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 uh, some tech company created some AI, right? It was going to be a robot, um, an AI uh, robot that would work with military, with ground troops, infantry or whatever, um, to, to do certain tasks and identify targets and this and that, right? And so <clears throat> this robot worked with a group of, I think it was like 12 Marines for a week. And so just kind of learn their patterns, like saw the Marines doing things, learn their, like their human patterns, what they do, what they don't do, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so then the company was like, let's put it to the test. They said, they said, uh, we want to see um, if our robot can can uh can do what it's supposed to do against your 12 marines and uh and it was like it was like again it was like enemy detection and things of that nature so they said okay we're up to the challenge and um so they had this robot position to do its job and identify uh uh, uh enemy threats and these marines found every possible way to navigate around this ai you know controlled robot programmed robot like one, what was it? One of them did uh, from like a thousand meters away, apparently did cartwheels all the way up to the robot because a robot had never seen somebody do cartwheels up to it. <laughs> um, another, a couple of Marines uh, put up, uh, I guess it is a, is a throwback to a cartoon, put a box over himself with two Marines inside of it. And they walked up to this robot, just giggling, apparently is, is what that is. Or, you know, and this robot was like, uh, I just see a box, you know, um, and, and so it kind of it kind of reminds me of that. It's like, okay, well, you you've got this problem, and you've created this this thing, this technology that's able to identify these problems. Now let's poke holes in it, and that's where your military people come in. They can poke holes in. We can poke holes in a lot of things, sure, um, in a completely different way that you wouldn't think about. Yeah, just right. for last, we'll do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, that's the fifth option. Exactly. It's, it's always nuclear. It's something crazy, but yeah, it's good stuff. No, I um, there's a there's a passion here because the, the serious side of this is we got brothers and sisters that are self eliminating at probably forty four or more a day, and I think if you get this transition thing right, we can get in front of that. And where do you know if you break the day up into thirds, you're sleeping a third of it, you're working a third of it, and the other third's yours, right? So you got you to try and get all, all three of those right. Well, 
most of us are going off into civilian employment. And as soon as that goes sideways, you get values misaligned and you start having problems with your purpose and your identity, it gets ugly. And um, and sometimes unrecoverable. So we need to create environments where they're safe, man. Our brothers and sisters deserve to go to environments where they're safe. And then where do you, where are you safe? It's when people understand you. You know, they don't have to be you. And, you know, we don't need to be looking down our noses at them. I forgive almost all of them because they're just, it's ignorance. It's a, and a, ignorance in a good way. It's ignorance just because they don't know. Um, and so some of us can carry the rucksack a couple extra, a couple extra meters to get it there and then let them pick it up and, and, and move on. I had a guy tell me one time that Marines were lazy. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, he goes, they get stuff done and then I'll just see them and they're sitting around. I said, Right. So you told them to take the city block. They took it. They took their ruck off. They need a break. He goes, what? I said, just tell them what you need to have done and have something else ready for them when they go. And I said, they'll keep executing all day long. He goes, oh, I thought they were just lazy. See, that's just, it's it's a perception. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Marines are not lazy. Marines are a lot of things. They're not lazy. Well, that's yeah. a good, that's a good point. Um because you you do give you give you give somebody a, a a task. Hey, I need this task complete. Um, maybe their civilian counterpart can knock it out in four hours. Your 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 military person is probably going to bang it out hour and a half, two hours because they know as soon as this task is complete, I got some downtime. Go because we look forward <laughs> to downtime great. in the military. You know what I mean? Let's go burn that's, one. That's a that's an eleven Bravo mentality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen yeah. the movie? Have you ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? Yes. Oh yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. You know when they're tar in the road, and Luke gets them all pumped up and says, "Hurry up!" Because when we're done with the road, we're done. And they're all sitting in the ditch. They had a full day's work schedule. They got it done in half a day, and the prisoners are all just laying around in the ditch, doing nothing because they finished all the work because they busted their tail on the front end. That's that's. That's eleven Bravo grunt stuff there, man. Just get it done. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're we're so used to given be, being given tasks in a time frame. Hey, we yeah. need to have every Bradley in the motor pool PMCS by you know seventeen hundred by COB. You have to do complete this twelve mile ruck march under three hours. You have ninety seconds to uh, clear, disassemble, reassemble, and do a function <laughs> check on the M two forty Bravo. So you know what? Ninety seconds too easy. I'm gonna I'm gonna bang all that stuff out in you know whatever time. Yeah. And and that's just how we're programmed. It's how we're indoctrinated <laughs> to, to be. Right. Um. You know you have you know you you know you have you have to go out and run two miles under the certain time. You know what I mean? It's it's that's just how we're programmed to be. So when we when we come into the civilian market and and and, and Mr. Boss says, "Hey, I need X Y Z done, and it has to be done by." you know, 3 p.m., okay, yeah, if no I get way. it done at 1.30, if I get it done at 13.30, I got some time to kill, mm -hmm. you know? That's just how it is. And it's not because we're lazy. It's because we can think of the easiest way to get from yeah. point A to point B yeah. um, and, 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 you know, be efficient. And, and we're moral, legal, and ethical while we're doing it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, because, because it's the creed. Exactly. You have to live it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. All right, Dave. You guys, are, you guys are great. I know we're right at the hour. No, no. Hey, so, again, thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah. Um, right. It's, it's again, it's late where you are. Ah, we're good. Anytime you could have been like, hey, no, let's do this a different time. But, again, you wanted to talk to us. You had something yeah. to explain to people, some a story to tell. And it's a beautiful thing to sit back 
and have a conversation with someone who understands what you've been through. And it is more, it's worth more than gold to walk away from that conversation feeling like you've been heard by somebody. That is more important than anything else because it will make you want to talk to that person again or talk to other people. I'm not even going to lie, man. Kevin, me and Kevin, we've spoken about how he can talk to people randomly out on the street. And I am so closed off. I don't want to talk to anybody for the most part. I need to get out of that myself and start to talk to more people. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I have this show. So we can talk to people and get it off our chest, man. Yeah. It's so important. Well, I, you know, I titled the book Giving Back because I had an epiphany. And the thing was, was why should I have all of these gifts that were given to me by all of my experiences and probably lived the life of three men? Why would I ever even think about remotely going to my grave without pushing back and giving it back? Mm. And you guys are in the same boat. So it's kind of our responsibility. Another responsibility, right? But it is kind of our responsibility to do it. For future generations. It's a good responsibility to have because if we don't do it, who 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 else is gonna? And and it goes back to the leadership leadership conversation we had and all that. I mean it all ties to that. So never give up, man. Jimmy V. Jimmy Mm -hmm. Valvano, man. Never give up. Okay, so before we leave, go ahead and tell us all your social media contacts so people that's listening can get in contact with you. I'm gonna make it easy. www.maxfabconsulting.com and it is all there. You can get the book. You can reach out and get, you know, free 30 minutes to an hour with me if you just click on contact me and just book it right on my calendar. Um, you can uh, read my blogs. You can read my newsletters on there. It's all there. It's a one-stop shop. And I'm on LinkedIn and and uh, and uh, and Facebook and, and all the others. But uh, yeah, anything that's out there is usually is usually on the website. So, yeah. Look me up. Hit me up if you're a business out there and you think that you need to be vet ready. Um, I'm I'm ready to jump on a plane, train, automobile, jeepney, whatever it takes. We'll get you there. So there it is. Before we go, Kevin, you're wearing a really cool shirt. I'm pretty sure you can find that T-shirt that you're wearing at www.beforeforgetthepodcast.com. You should probably show it off for the the camera. Man, I'm always having to show off my clothes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is actually uh, this is actually a shirt that uh, that we have designed. It's got our logo on the front, and I'm not going to spin around because that's weird, but on the back it says, um, <laughs> but in the end, one needs more courage to live. And it's a quote from Albert Camus. Um, in the end, one needs more courage to live. And basically, it's a, it, you know, when you're struggling, when, when things have – uh, gone downhill and they spiral to the bottom and you're at the bottom of that pit and you don't know how to get out, man. It takes more strength to try and survive. Um, below that, it's got the, the nine, eight, eight, which is the, um, for those that don't, for those folks that don't know the suicide hotline, which was one big long one, eight hundred number is now nine, eight, eight. So if you are in a struggle and you are dealing with these problems, nine, eight, eight, call them, talk to them, get the help that you need, reach out to me, reach out to Tyree. I bet, I bet Dave here would, yep, would, you, you, you would reach absolutely. out to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, because it takes more strength to admit that we feel weak, you yep. know? And uh, so that's what the shirt is for. And it's on our website. Like Tyree said, before I forget the podcast.com uh, where we have other stuff, videos, our bios, pictures of things. It's whatever. It's all there. Um yeah, so uh Dave, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um 
I'm actually, uh, <clears throat> we're going to plug in all of your stuff, but www.maxfabconsulting.com. Look up his book on Amazon, Giving Back Life and Leadership from the Farm to the Combat Zone and Beyond. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Dave. And hey, Tyree here with Before I Forget. Please like, listen, share, subscribe, watch the show, and share it, please. Kevin, you got anything? No, that's it. That's it. Boom. Have a good one. Thank you, guys. Have a good one.